friends can can bring you a lot of joy in your life and they can bring you a lot of pain and sometimes at the same moment, right? Uh, friends have a lot of influence in our lives. They can influence us to do good things, bad things, or just goofy things as evidenced by our video today. We're starting our new series called Friends. And we're going to take the whole month of August, five weeks, that we are going to look at friends, and we're going to look at how friends influence our lives, for, for, for better or for worse. Specifically, I want to ask you this question over the next five weeks. What did they influence you to do that you would not have done if they had not been around? What did they, they influence you to do that you would not have done if they had not been around. Now, I want you to put your thinking caps on today because we're going to begin this journey over the next five weeks to evaluate the influences that we allow in our lives. They is a powerful word. They carry a lot of weight. They said this about you. They said this. Well, they think this. Well, they think that. Who's they? Ever notice that? Oh man, everybody, everybody's upset about this. They think they, who's they? I don't know. A friend of mine is a, is a pastor in another church and one night somebody got up and just ripped him. They say that you are a bad pastor. They say, they say, well, who says? Well, a bunch of people says when they finally pressed through on the issue, you know what she, well, it wasn't even her. It was the chairman of the deacons said the pastor was a bad guy. Just one person, but they say, they say, who's they? So here's what I want you to to figure out today. Which they are you listening to? The right they or the wrong they? And I want you to think about to the experiences back to the experiences you've had in your life. What did the right they influence you to do that you would not have done if they had not been around? Other side of the coin, and I, you have lots of stories this side. What did the wrong they influence you to do that you would not have done if they had not been around? Now, the reason we're going to focus on this is because God tells us in his word that he has incredible things for our lives, incredible things for us to do. Ephesians 3.20 says this, God can do anything, you know, for more than you could. uh, Hello, let's read this. God can do anything, you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. God has some giant stuff that he, he created you to do. He custom designed you to perform some task on this planet. And it's not just eating, breathing, taking up space and dying. It's not just the job you do outside these walls. God created you to do something in this world. And it's a God-sized task. Do you know why God always wants to do God-sized stuff? Well, because he's God, yeah. He loves us, He wants to use us, but He uses us to do God-sized things so that the focus is not on us, the focus is on Him. Who gets the glory when God accomplishes something that no human being could do? People go, no way, there must be a supernatural, there must be a God. That's God's plan all along, is to get all of the glory for doing God-sized things. So if, if God is so powerful and he wants to use little old me and he wants to use little old you to accomplish God-sized stuff in the world, why didn't he just do it? Why didn't he just force us to do whatever he wants us to do? I think it's because, many times, it's because of this little word, they. We're going to call it the sway of they. You know what I'm talking about. 
we've got to recognize which they has the most sway in our lives today. And we could play all the way. Okay, I'll stop. Now, I want you to watch an interview. This is one of our guys who has come through Celebrate Recovery. And, and this interview, Jeff did this interview with him for me. Asking him uh, specifically, this clip you're going to see about five minutes long, is what did the right they, I want you to, to notice what the right they, they did in his life. He had, he's 60 years old. For 48 of those years of his life, he's been addicted to some kind of drugs, whether that's crack, whether that's alcohol, whether that's um, marijuana. Watch what the right they did in this instance. Because the question was, have you tried to stop before? Yeah, I've tried to stop many times doing the drug thing. What what made the difference this time? Here's what he had to say. Listen closely. The audio is not great. The people at Celebrate Recovery, the support team at Celebrate Recovery gave me. I had church, New Life Community Church. I had Jesus Christ. Uh, before, I didn't have anything. It was just me trying to uh, quit. I, I still was smoking marijuana and uh, drinking and things like that. Now, with all the support I have now, I'm fine. I'm, I'm clean. What's significant about that, where you said? <laughs> uh, about eight months ago, I almost died in this chair. Um, my heartbeat went from uh, normal to 188 beats a minute. My heart was about to explode. Uh, the doctor said it was a weak heart that was caused by smoking crack. Now. Uh, I, have, I have troubles breathing every now and then. I might be having to exercise, but I have a feeling it's also dealing with the heart. You were here at Celebrate Recovery at that time. Kind of describe uh, what was going through your mind, you know, when that happened. And kind of describe the night, what was going on. I was here. Uh, listening to a lesson by Jeff, and uh, I just I felt nauseated, dizzy. Uh, I, something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. He has that effect on a lot of people when he's teaching. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. Uh, something was wrong, and fortunately. Again, that support team is here. They got me to the hospital in time. And, well, I'm here now. I'm a lot healthier now. How did you get started in drugs? Well. Go back all the way. Now now that I'm 60 years old, I think the first drug I ever took or had was a cigarette. Took cigarettes, or kind of borrowed cigarettes from my brothers, and me and the guys I grew up with, we'd go out in the field, and they had fields in Berkeley, uh, and smoked cigarettes. And every now and then, my father would have a beer, and I got me a beer. Uh, you know, I never really did like tasting beer; it was just the thing to do at the time. Um, 
bought my first wheel drug, and soon to be my drug of choice was marijuana. That was in 1969 in a park in Pleasant Hill, California. I went out there with these people. I have no idea who they are, at least to this day anyway. And I smoked my first joint, and I think I was out there for a whole weekend on that one joint. Just, uh, I liked it at the time, you know, and I smoked marijuana almost continuously. Um, uh, long beer and hard liquor, of course. And smoked some coke. I smoked some, um, uh, speed. Uh, until 1996, when I quit for a short period of time. And then I started again, like I said, in 2000. Uh, but that was just on the crack of the marijuana. But I had never, I had not quit the marijuana. I quit everything else except for drinking and the marijuana until 2000. I went back to the crack and I didn't, I think I, I dropped marijuana at the main thing, and I still drank, but nine months ago, you get rid of all of them, cigarettes, marijuana, crack, anything, uh, I still drink occasionally, but I couldn't tell you, I can't remember the last time I did. See the difference the right they made? Uh, you'll hear more in the weeks ahead of, of his story. Greg is now uh, out in California trying to reconnect with his children. He's, he's got nine children. Um, one of them's on death row. Uh, one of them, ironically, is a prosecutor, prosecuting attorney, and he, he will tell you some of that in, in his story. But I tell you all of that to say, Greg will tell you that, that Celebrate Recovery, our church, um, Jesus Christ, those are the folks who came into his life and radically changed the trajectory of his life. And uh, the right day has that kind of power, that kind of sway in your life. And speaking of they, there's a, there's a great Bible story. Imagine that. There's a great Bible story about they in the Bible. There's a guy named Nehemiah. He knew about the sway of they because Nehemiah did something they said could not be done. Now, Nehemiah had this cush job in the Persian government. 
his job was to be the cupbearer. And what the cupbearer did was they would taste the food before the king um, ate it so that, that they could find out if it was poison or anything. Because in those days, assassination was a big deal. And if you could get rid of a king, you could help change power and all this stuff. So he got to eat a lot of good food. One of the downsides was, you know, you could die. But better the cupbearer die than the king die. So he's one of these higher-ups. He's got to be someone that the king trusts completely to taste the wine and, and to taste the food so that they make sure that the food is okay. Well, there comes a point in Nehemiah's life when he hears about his hometown, Jerusalem. The walls are broken down in Jerusalem. And so he goes to the king and he asks permission to leave his cush job, which is a very big job in the Persian kingdom. He says, can I go back to my hometown and rebuild the walls? And uh, that seems kind of weird to us because we're going, what's the big deal about walls? What's so big and bad about walls? Why, why did they need walls? Well, to us, it's not a big deal. Um, but back in 440 B.C., it was a very big deal. The walls around the city protected the inhabitants of that city. And for the Jews, they wanted to worship the one true God in the temple. And so if they were going to gather in one location to worship God, they needed walls to protect them. It reminded me, years ago, I went on a mission trip up to um, uh, Montana. Yeah, I knew it was an M word. It wasn't Missouri. Although Missouri needs missionaries, right? Stanley. Stanley's from Missouri. Anyway, we went to Montana. And we went through Yellowstone National Park on the way back home. There's this one section of the park where it says you cannot camp in tents. You'll see tents in certain areas, but there's one place where you can't camp in tents. And I thought that was a really strange sign. You have to have some type of hard-sided deal there. And I started asking questions, and they said, I said, how come you, got, you can't camp in a tent? You know, you got to have a hard... They said, because the bears will eat you. you. This is a segment of the of the park where if you if you don't have something hard-sided grizzly bears will come down and they don't care if you're human they just know you have food you're a source of food you may be the source of food and so it's it you can't camp there without some type of hard-sided wall to protect you can you imagine going out into grizzly country and all you have is a tent or just sleep under the stars you know just just have a good time well that's kind of what it was like think about at your house Think about if the walls are broken down around your house, what kind of idiots could come and stick their nose in just checking out what you're doing? Well, in Jerusalem, it was a similar situation, only it was the entire city had the walls broken down. And if, if the walls were broken down, your enemies could come and go at will. And in fact, they could force you to do what they wanted you to do because you had no way to protect yourself from the enemies. So Nehemiah wants to go. And because of the favor of God on his life, the, the king grants his request. He says, okay, you can go. Just tell me how long it's going to take you. You can go. The king writes letters to the governors of all of the provinces. The king gives him all this money. And the king um, uh, even even gives him permission to, to, uh, to go to the forest and give the note to the forest keepers. And they were going to cut down all the wood that they needed to rebuild the walls. This is just amazing. Well, Nehemiah hits the road. And it's a long way from the capital of Persia to J-Town, to Jerusalem. So he hits the road. He finally gets to J-Town. And nobody knows for sure why he's there, but he knows. He knows God has called him to rebuild these walls. And people had tried to do it for many, many years, and they could never do it. They were just problems. Um, so he gets there, and he starts telling the people, this is what God has shown me to do. This is what God has done. He's granted me favor in the eyes of the king of Persia. He starts gathering the right day around him, and he says, who's in? Who's with me? Let's build the wall. And they're like, yes, let's build the wall. And immediately... After he gets the right they around him, after word gets out that they are going to rebuild this wall, the wrong they show up. Look at Nehemiah 2.19. But when Sanballat the Horonite 
Tobiah the Ammonite officer and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they made fun of us and laughed at us. Which they were they? That was the wrong they. They said, what are you doing? Are you turning against the king? So they didn't realize he had permission. They said, oh, you must be a rebel. The real reason you're building the walls of Jerusalem is that you want to rebel against the king. You don't want to be part of Persia anymore. We know what you're up to. And they start stirring up all kinds of trouble. Say, Nehemiah, you're, you're smoking some kind of crack, dude. You, you're crazy. You're going to try to rebuild that city. We know you're up against this thing and you're going to try to, to rebel. Now look at verse 20, what Nehemiah says. But I answered them, again, this is the wrong they, I answered the wrong they, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but you have no share, claim, or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had a God-sized job to do. And Nehemiah decided he was going to step up and do the job. He wasn't going to wait for someone else to do the job. Nehemiah was going to step up. He was going to gather the right they around him, and then he was going to attack this project. And by the way, this is a good lesson for us. If we are smart, now I know that's a that's a capital letter I and a capital letter F. If we are smart, because sometimes we're not smart, we'll do the same thing. We'll see, we'll go to God. God will give us this God-sized task. We'll get the right day around us, and then we'll start doing the job, because that's what we were created to do. There's no fulfillment like doing what God created you to do. And then, then Nehemiah says to them, you have no share, claim, or memorial in Jerusalem. The wrong they do not want anything to do with God and they don't want you to have anything to do with God. This is huge because God says he wants you to do something. So you've got to choose. Am I going to go with God's day or am I going to go with the world's day? Which day am I going to listen to? Because if you could see God's plan for you, you'd say no way. And God go way. And I imagine he would say that probably not in the surfer dude almost want to be. But you understand what I'm saying. You and I are only limited by which they we hang out with. The right they or the wrong they. Now, if you've not discovered this principle, I want to make it real, real clear to you. Whenever you decide to follow God's plan, whenever you decide that you're going to get right with God like Greg did, when you decide that you're going to do this and you begin getting the right they around you, immediately the wrong they is going to show up. It'll happen. I'm just predicting that. Right now. And and some of you are going, well, what's so wrong about the wrong they? What's so bad about them? Well, let me give you just two things that, that kind of illustrate what's bad about the wrong they. First of all, the wrong they keep us frozen in fear. And I want you to see this from the story of Nehemiah. The right they come to talk to Nehemiah. The right they are the Jews. And as soon as the right they come to him, he says, he writes this in Nehemiah 4.12. Then the Jewish people, that's the right they who lived near our enemies, came and told us ten times. That's getting old. Ten times. Everywhere you turn, the enemy, the wrong they, will attack us. What's happening is Nehemiah had to gather people from all over the countryside. So men had to leave their families so that they could go and do what God had called them to do, to rebuild the walls. And so Nehemiah is, is, is telling them, you've got to come do this. This is God's plan. This is bigger than all of us. If you want to be a part of this, come help us out. Well, the people that are out there with no protection, they're coming in and saying, man, everybody's talking about they are going to attack us. They're going to attack us. Because if they can't scare you with rumors, then they're going to ratchet up. They're scared tactics. And so they said, okay, if rumors of going to the king, telling the king you're railing, if that's not enough, we're going to attack you. And because you have no walls, because you're a bunch of people that don't know how to fight, we will destroy you. 
So Nehemiah takes some precautions and he, he gets the guys armed and, and the guys that are going for, uh, if they're supposed to go get some more supplies, they're supposed to push a wheelbarrow with one hand and have their sword in the other hand and half of them are on the wall night and day with their swords, the other half are working, then they swap and, and he comes up with this, this brilliant plan to do everything humanly possible to protect against the wrong they. And then look what it says in Nehemiah 4, 14. He says, then I looked over the situation. Now, I, I, I got to back up here. In the New American Standard, it actually says, when I saw their fear. All right, so Nehemiah does everything he can to protect these people, to get guards, to get armed people ready to fight. And then he says, I look out over my people, the people I've gathered together, and I saw in their eyes, I saw fear. All right, here we go. When I saw their fear, then I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people, and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Here's the amazing thing to me. According to recent statistics, 91% of Americans say they believe in God. Now, just from your humble observations as you go around this county and this state and this this nation, would you say that 91% of people act like they believe in God? Because what do we do at the first sign of trouble? Do we say, oh God, I know you parted the Red Sea. I know you raised people from the dead. I know Jesus. Do we say that and say, because of that, I know you've got the power over the situation? No. We get mad at God. We get upset because God doesn't do things our way. Faith is when I say to God, I see the enemy. I see the situation. I'm fully aware that that enemy can wipe me out. And I'm in deep weeds if you don't show up, God. But I'm going to trust you. Because in your word, it says to trust you. Did you know that there are 365 fear knots in the Bible? There's a fear not. Do not be afraid for every day of the year. Because God knows the wrong day is going to try to paralyze us with fear. When you're afraid, you don't do what you're supposed to do. So that the wrong day tries to prey on us and keep us paralyzed in fear. We've got to face that and trust God in spite of the fear. The second thing the wrong day they does is they keep us from God's path. They want you to be afraid so you don't take any steps. But more than that, they want you to be on their path. You see, misery loves company. The wrong they are miserable and they want as many people as possible to be miserable too. That makes them feel better in their misery. So they'll try to sabotage your relationship with God. And they'll say stuff like this. Well, that's fine if you want God in your life, but don't you be bringing that God junk around me. And it's really interesting to me because a lot of people, the, the number one reason they say they don't go to church is because there's too many hypocrites there. And if somebody says to me, hey, that's fine if you believe in God, but don't act like you believe in God around me, what they're telling me to do is be a hypocrite in front of them. That just doesn't make sense to me. If, if I change the way I act around you just to please you, I'm a poser. When I try to appease you and see myself the way you see me, that leads me further and further away from God. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Don't fool yourselves. Bad friends will, what? Destroy you. You know how they do it? By keeping you from God's path for your life. By keeping you from experiencing what God created you to do. Bad friends will lead you down a path that God never intended for you to go down. And that's when people get mad too. We make stupid choices and we say, God, you could have prevented this. 
How dare you allow her to get pregnant? How dare you, God? That's going to mess up my life. How dare you, God, allow this to happen to me when I'm the one who made the stupid choice? Now, I want you to notice what Nehemiah didn't do when the wrong day shows up. He didn't stop work on what he was supposed to do so he could argue with the wrong day. He didn't put down all of his tools to build a wall and, and come up to the wrong day and, and have a debate. No, he says, God told us to do this. You're not a part of God's plan. Bye-bye. I mean, somebody go, oh, that's very harsh. Well, do you want to accomplish God-sized stuff or not? God's looking for obedient people, not mediocre people. Nehemiah prayed and he stayed above the fray. He prayed to God. He gathered all his leaders together. They prayed to God. They kept right on work and said, God's going to deliver us. The right they helped him focus on God. So, okay, who are the right they? How do I find the right day? Well, let me just tell you, the first thing you got to do is get plugged into the local church. The right they are going to be involved in a local church. You get involved in serving. You get in a small group. And before long, you'll recognize this is the key. The right they have he right in the middle. You know who the he is? God is the center of their universe, not the other way around. The right they have he, God, in the center of their lives. And let me just give you real quickly some characteristics so that you can identify the right he. The right, the right he, the right they. The right they, number one, they're tough. Now I mentioned this last week. I get fired up when, when ignorant people call Christians weak. A sold out Christian will die for his faith. And don't ever tell me that someone like Greg Lusk is weak for admitting to you that he had a drug problem that now he's conquered. Don't you dare try to tell me that that Jason Selman is weak because he sat up here and he admitted to you that he used to have an addiction to pornography. That by the grace of God, he has recovered from and God has put his marriage back together and, and made him a better father and a better man. There's nothing weak about standing up here admitting things to you. Don't tell me that, that Keith is weak because he calls me last night and says, dude, I blew it. Don't tell me that he's weak because he told you he lost his cool and lost his witness in front of other people. Don't you dare come back and tell me that they're weak. Because I will get in your face. You know who's weak? People that are posers. People that pretend that are too weak to admit they even have mistakes. You're the one who's weak. So don't tell me that a Christian is weak. Don't tell me the people that show up on Friday nights and when we get into September go to Sunday nights. Don't tell me that folks that come up here and say, I struggle with this area of my life. Don't you dare tell me they're weak. Weak people have excuses. Tough Mature people say, I got a problem and I can't deal with it on my own. And I'm telling you, because I went through a year of, of Celebrate Recovery. Some of the men I have the most respect for sat in a small group with me for a year. We'd, we'd go and listen to Jeff's teaching and get nauseated. And then we would go to our small group time. It's called open share time. Five or six men sitting around in a group. And I can still see faces. I can still, I would never tell you what we talked about. But I remember one time a man shared something that was going on. And, and it was kind of one of those things that just, you know, we, we didn't expect anybody to share that. Another man got up and walked across and hugged him. His words were, that's the bravest thing I've ever seen a guy do. And I sat there going, holy. 
Hallelujah. I mean, it was church. I mean, in my mind, I'm, I'm going, God is awesome. Because when we bring out into the light those things, there's nothing weak about that. Weakness is when I hide and I pretend and I pose. New life, we've said from the beginning, is for real people who have real problems, who believe there are real answers in a real higher power named Jesus Christ. Are we clear on that? The right they are tough. Number two, they're honest. The right they love you enough to tell you the truth, even if it hurts your feelings. When I was in seminary, I had to read a book called Caring Enough to Confront. It's just this great little book. And confrontation, a lot of people think that's a bad word. Well, the premise of the book is that you really don't care about another person if you're not willing to confront them with the idea of reconciliation. The whole point of confrontation is we need to get our relationships back where they're supposed to be. When we don't confront, then Satan wins this big, huge battle against us and he he defames the church and, and Christians. And, and, you know, when the whole idea is people know that we're Christians by the way we love one another. And, and the way I really show you that I love you is when I know everything there is to know about you and I love you anyway. That's what the church is supposed to be like. And And if you... Don't confront somebody who's doing something that's destructive, whether that's destructive to their their marriages, their families, maybe just their own life. When you aren't willing to confront them and say what you're doing is wrong, you don't really love that person. You're enabling them to continue doing destructive behavior, which at the very least could cost them their 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 families. It could cost them their lives and and it could cost them their eternity in hell. Because we're not willing to go to them and say, I love you. And what you're doing is killing you and it's killing me to watch you die. The right they say, I love you too much to watch you destroy yourself. So don't tell me again that, that that's a weak person who is willing to come to you in love and say, what you're doing is wrong. Now, some of you, you right here in this group, you have the right they in your lives. They are speaking into your life right now and you're ignoring them. Some of you are students. I was in student ministry for 19 years. And there are some folks in our student ministry that are the right day and they are speaking the truth to you. And you're saying, I don't care. Here's just a little little headline. The right they know more than you do. The right they have been around the block. Maybe you should listen to the right they. Teenagers? For a lot of you teenagers, you're going to hate this. The right they is your mom and dad. God gave them to you. He didn't mess up. God, there's a huge malfunction in your birth data place configuration. I, you gave me the wrong mom and dad. No, he didn't. Now, I'm not saying they're perfect, but God didn't mess up. Some of you... You're a single adult and you're you're hanging out with the wrong person. You're dating the wrong person. And everyone who loves you in your life is saying, run away, run away. And you're going, no, I love them. Love will get us through. How many of you here have said that love will get us through this relationship and you are now either out of the dating relationship or you're out of a marriage? Let me just see your hand. Love will get us through. Hang on, put them up. I want everybody to look around. Look how many folks are here who... Love was not enough. If everybody's telling you they're wrong, listen. 
maybe a part of the right day is trying to speak the truth about your marriage. And you're saying, I don't care. If that's the case, if the right day is, is telling you truth and you reject that, don't get mad at God when you continue destructive patterns in your life. Oh God, send me an answer. Someone shows up and gives you the answer. That's not the answer I want. Send me another answer. Someone else shows up, gives you the same answer. It's not the answer I want. The right they are tough, honest. Third, they're encouraging. The right they build you up. Even if they have to speak some tough words to you, they're more concerned about your future than your past. Encourage literally means to pour courage in someone. You need to find somebody like that. They encourage you to love your spouse and love your kids. When you blow it, they encourage you to get up and do the right thing. They know everything about you and they love you. Life's too short to hang out with whiners and complainers. I'm 44 and I'm old. <laughs> Just because I'm a year older than him. Am I a year or two years older than you? I don't remember. But it's just, I don't want to hang out with people that constantly pull me down. I want to hang out with people that I love. That build me up. And I think you do too. And the fourth thing is the right they are yielded. They are yielded to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, in all those, I like those old um, war movies, you know, like from medieval times when there's knights of the round table and all that stuff. When you're going to be knighted, you know what you have to do? Take a knee. You have to bow, get on your knees before the higher up, the king in this situation, and he knights you because you're willing to be humble. He looks for someone who has great characteristics and he knights them. Well, if you have to wonder if the person that you're dating or wanting to marry, or if you have to wonder if they're yielded to Christ, they're not. Oh, I... I I used to ask teenagers, first question I'd always ask them when they come in, hey, I got a boyfriend or girlfriend, they're coming to youth group tonight. I say, oh yeah, you're going out with them? Yeah. Are they a Christian? I don't know. How come you don't know? Because we've never talked about it. Why would you not talk about that? Because we're just talking. I said, do you realize that you will end up marrying somebody, somebody that you're just talking to? Come on. So if you date non-Christians, guess who you marry? Non-Christians? And it's this constant struggle. Date people that are yielded to Christ. But I'm lonely. The loneliest people I know are in the middle of a marriage when there's not any love anymore. It's better to be single and alone than to be married and alone. You need people who are yielded to Jesus Christ. So the people that are the right they have he in the middle. Most of the time you don't find them at the bar. Greg will tell you that part of his struggle, because in, in part of his interview we said, well, did you have any relapses? Sure, he had relapses, because every drug dealer in town knew his truck. He tried, he would come up here, he'll, he'll tell you, I'll, I'll play this in a few weeks, but he, he said he would get paid on a Monday, uh, on the first of the month. By the third of the month he was out of money. Because anywhere he went, the drug dealers, the wrong they would show up. And he couldn't handle it. Finally gave his life to Christ, got around the right they, and, and that truck, 
you know what he what he did in that truck for months before he went to California? He'd get up early and he would be out there with his Bible. He'd watch the sunrise and he said, sometimes I would just weep because I couldn't believe God loved me. The right they will pour into your life and make a difference. Now, in September, we're going to... uh crank our small groups back up. And we have a sign-up sheet out back. We want you to be involved in small groups. And you're going to hear this for the next five weeks. You might as well just go ahead and give in and go sign up. Because we're going to, we're going to do small groups beginning the, the second Sunday in September. So you got five, six weeks to sign up. Um, and we want you to be involved. And, and you're going to hear from people that have been involved in small groups. Because you hear from me all the time. I've had a small group now um, for the past 15 years, I think. Is that right? No, past 13 years, there's been a small group that's met in my house. Some of my best friends today have come through that small group because we study God's Word together, we eat together, we hang out together, we do fun stuff together. That's right. Yeah, that's one of the partiness small groups ever is the McQuistian small group. Um, but but we want you involved, so sign up back there um, in the weeks ahead and we will plug you into a small group. Now, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to bow your heads for just a second. And I want you to think about who has the most sway in your life right now. Is it the right they or is it the wrong they? If it's the right they, I want you just to thank God for the right they in your life. If it's the wrong they, I want you to ask God to give you the strength and the courage to move away from the wrong they and then ask Him to bring the right they into your life.